everyone, and welcome to another episode of the EuroStory podcast, stories of politics and human rights in Europe. My name is Zoe Jay, and with me is my co-host, Amelia matajks Ferrandis. Hello. The EuroStory podcast aims to share the latest research on Europe and introduce you to what researchers have to say about topical issues affecting Europe and Europeans. And today we have the pleasure of talking to Professor Pamela Slote, who is the Vice Director of EuroStory, as well as the leader of Subproject 2, Discovering the Limits of Reason. And she's also a professor at ABO Academy that is located in Turku, Finland, and a principal investigator in the HERA-founded research project, Protestant Legacies in Nordic Law. Pamela's background lays on theology and her research has encompassed topics of moral philosophy, philosophy of religion, religious freedom, human rights, history of ideas, law and religion. She is also now researching how people's attitudes towards vaccinations are related to their beliefs and values. So she joins us today to talk about her research, the COVID-19 vaccines, and the relationships between health and human rights. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you for having me. And hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you in. So among your many, many interesting projects and expertises, you're currently part of the Interdisciplinary Research Group at or Vaccine Attitudes. Can you tell us a little bit about this project and what you're investigating? Yes. So um, in reality, Vaccine Attitudes could perhaps best be described as a consortium nowadays, a consortium that brings together a few distinct research projects that in different constellations engage scholars of psychology and ethics. As far as funded research goes, uh, we started back in 2018. So we began this research before the current COVID-19 pandemic started. More recently, our work has related also more specifically to this current pandemic, but fundamentally our focus is broader. And what we have been doing since the research started is to look at attitudes towards vaccines and towards so-called immunization practices. What kind of different attitudes do we encounter in the population? And how are these attitudes towards vaccines in turn linked to and influenced by people's other beliefs, convictions and values, their ideas about health and what is good health, their perceptions about parental responsibility and rights and about what good parenthood looks like, and their ideas about individual autonomy and self-determination and also many other things. And we study so-called meaning-making, that is how people make sense of vaccines and other health-related issues. Where do they look for information? What do they consider trustworthy sources of knowledge? Whom do they turn to? And what role does official information produced by health authorities play in all of this? So, uh, for example, in a forthcoming article that I wrote with one of my colleagues, we study how knowledge and conceptions about infectious diseases and other health-related matters are created concretely through social interaction. And uh, what we have found on the basis of our analysis of interview material from a Finnish region um, with so-called suboptimal vaccine uptake is that people have very different strategies when it comes to seeking, understanding and creating meaning. People don't just turn to health authorities, perhaps the local pediatrician, 
or to official pages with health-related information for advice and support, although many do that too. But also, for example, family and friends and social media are important. And on that basis of these various consultations, if we may call them that, people then make up their own minds. That's very clear. Our interviewees underlined also that reaching different conclusions is legitimate. So um, from this follows that it would be important to stay clear of uh, a dichotomized way of thinking when it comes to conceptions about health and vaccines. Researchers and policymakers are often interested in those people who are the most hesitant or the most negative towards vaccine. And this may be based on an idea of there being basically two ways of relating to government recommendations or scientific knowledge. Either you accept it or you do not accept it. And the ones that you then need to target are the ones who are negative. But what our research shows is that such an approach overlooks the many ways in which people actually negotiate meaning in health and vaccine-related issues. And it would be important to understand how people's attitudes to vaccines and large-scale health initiatives like immunization practices are created and which factors actually affect these attitudes. Because we know that large-scale immunization is one of the foremost ways to prevent infectious and potentially deadly diseases and improve general population health. Thank you very much for that such a rich answer. But we normally have this sort of like questions about terminology for our listeners to properly you know, set the topic. And in that sense, I would like to ask you, like, what will you define as vaccine hesitancy? And what will be some of the main beliefs and motivations behind these people's decisions to take or decline vaccinations, considering all the different sources that you said people try to consult to make their mind up? Sure. Well, well to start with, it's worth mentioning that it's quite rare that people resist vaccines completely. On the other hand, it's rather common to have different kinds of doubts and different level doubts in relation to vaccines. It is common to have questions about vaccines, even if you by default would hold a positive attitude towards them. And the group of what we could categorize as vaccine hesitant people is very heterogeneous. In Finland, my colleagues have estimated that some 15 to 20% of the population belong to this group depending on which vaccine we are talking about. And many of these people still end up taking the vaccine or having their children take them. And there are many different reasons for hesitancy, uh, which again makes it really important to study these determinants in context. And I'll just mention a few of them. An obvious one relates to vaccine safety. Uh, people may be afraid of potential side effects. And past experiences with vaccines or knowing someone or having heard of someone who has suffered side effects uh, may influence one's position here. In our research, it was, for example, um, rather common that informants mentioned the 2009 swine flu pandemic as a point in time when they started to think more critically about vaccines. Both in Finland and elsewhere, several persons developed narcolepsy following vaccination and the pandemic's influenza vaccine used at the time has proven to be associated with an increased risk of exactly narcolepsy. 
A reason for hesitating um, may also be that one reckons that one's own risk of falling ill is very low. Hence, why would you take the vaccine and risk, for example, side effects? Also, whether or not a vaccine is mandated, that's to say compulsory, may affect people's attitudes to a vaccine. It may result in what researchers call reactance, which is characterized by negative emotions such as anger that may arise when people feel that their freedom of choice has been threatened or taken away. And a recent study shows that so-called mandates may result in this kind of reactance as well as an unwillingness to accept also other non-mandatory vaccines. Um, studies have also shown that vaccine hesitancy oftentimes is based on a fundamental distrust in medical authorities and indeed also other authorities. Um, studies by my colleagues in Finland reveal that trust in doctors is key, the lack of which may lead to vaccine resistance and or to exploring complementary or alternative medicine as an alternative. So there is a crucial link to be found between trust in authorities and trust in vaccines. And finally, hesitancy may also be linked specifically to different religious or non-religious convictions. Hesitancy or indeed resistance to COVID-19 vaccines has been linked to, for example, information about fetal cell lines sometimes being used in the production of these vaccines. However, uh, all of these and also other reasons for hesitancy cannot necessarily be neatly separated from each other or indeed attributed to just one or the other distinct group of persons. As a recent survey um, among religious persons who were hesitant to vaccines in the US showed, the most common reason for this hesitancy was indeed potential side effects and not some supposedly purely religious grounds. Yeah, I was wondering in the first category that you mentioned, the one of like um, having the experience of someone they know having side effects. In that sense, also you mentioned previously social media playing a big role. So can this be also considering like trust of these people on, you know, testimonies they read on social media, even if they are from people that they don't really know? Um, my colleagues um, actually looked into that a while back and um, what they found or, or, or what they um, have told about this issue is that personal stories count a lot in comparison to some other information. So personal stories are very strong uh, testimonies that... that um, that have consequences for 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 our perception um, in comparison to, for example, some data that you are provided with. So yes, yeah, the, yeah. that's that quite means- common with a lot of medical information. I think I remember during the the Irish abortion referendum a few years ago that um, a lot of the the campaigners talked about personal stories of, of yes. women being denied access to abortions was what sort of encouraged people to understand the situation and empathize with it. And that's not the same sort of medical situation as as taking particular vaccines or being exposed to particular viruses. It's a different human right issue, but it's the same sort of 
dynamic of information spreading. And as humans, I guess, because we're very social, we react to social information more than sort of neutral Mm. or Mm. like large sums of numbers that Mm. don't play out in our lives in the same kind of way, I guess. I was really interested in the point you made earlier about um, government and health authority approaches often being very dichotomous, either you're for this intervention or you're not kind of approaches and the fact that most people's decision-making around health is not that straightforward. Um, So I was wondering if people are making decisions about vaccinations and about their health in general on the basis of much more nuanced understandings of trust and belief and conviction and the way they interact with other people, how can governments and health bodies use that information to build trust and present convincing cases for the efficacy of vaccines? How do we take that information that your research is uncovering and apply it to public policy? Well, I've got... um colleagues doing this kind of intervention studies at the moment, because they're very, very important, just as you pointed out, looking into how to tackle vaccine hesitancy and strengthen what we may call vaccine uptake. And also other studies are proposing, if not outright solutions, then at least some recommendations and advice uh, to this effect. Because we're dealing, of course, with a multidimensional issue that surely needs to be addressed or tackled at both a structural and an individual level. And for sure, what is being pointed out is that trust is built on the basis of accurate and up-to-date information that is accessible and communicated in a way and in a language that resonates with the different target groups. And also, as one of our forthcoming articles shows questions related to infectious diseases and especially vaccines are considered sensitive. It's a terrain that at least some of our informants navigated with some caution and they had different strategies for what they talked about and with whom they would have these conversations. For example, people may not feel that healthcare authorities or society allow them to ask questions and express doubts. As one informant put it, when we asked him why he thought that the issue of vaccines had become so contentious, he said it's because in a way vaccine questions have become non-questions. There is supposed to be nothing to debate about. Vaccines are a positive thing. So any hesitancy linked to action related to infectious diseases risks becoming a bone of contention. And of course, this would need to change because people will search for information anyways and their questions do not go away. So it would be important to create an atmosphere where people feel that they are allowed to have doubts and to voice these doubts and to pose questions and that they are taken seriously and met with respect by health authorities and others. Mm, yeah. Yeah, no, and uh, in relation with that answer and of some comments you made before as well. um, So it seems that, as you mentioned, some people maybe place their trust as well on the vaccine, the concrete label of the vaccine, because, well, this COVID-19 vaccination are possibly one of the most high-profile medical developments in history in terms of how closely their development and testing and rollout has been scrutinized around the world. And the different pharmaceutical companies and brands of vaccine like Pfizer, Moderna, Sinovac, and so on, 
Pretty much have the same kind of name recognition as basic household medical products like Panadol or Band-Aids. So I don't think the same can be said about any other vaccination for most people, like we'll say flu bags or tetanus shot, but don't ask about how, who made it or what version of it is, is so. Does that recognition and comparison affect people's perception of the COVID vaccines and their decisions around accepting or declining shots? Certainly for many, um, uh, a tetanus shot might not trigger much need for further reflection and comparison, especially if you compare it to the current COVID-19 vaccines. However, as I said before, when it comes to matters of health, our studies do show that people want to make informed decisions for themselves and for their children, and they look for information from different sources. So they'll ask their friends and family members and so forth. You might not necessarily read the latest scientific articles, but people do that too. And people who are vaccine hesitant or indeed vaccine resistant do read up a lot. So attitudes towards vaccines don't solely depend on how high profile the vaccine question is, with high profile ones being potentially more divisive, um, if I understood your question correctly. However, during our interviews, people did distinguish between the types of vaccines that are established that have been around for a long time, long in use, vaccines that they may have received already 30 years ago as children, like a first tetanus shot, and then newer vaccines that are being produced with some urgency, for example, in the midst of a pandemic. And while the former over time have proven to be safe and efficient, some informants did voice concerns about the latter ones, even if in general they would take a positive stance towards vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. The long-term development, I suppose, is really important. I guess all sorts of risks are like that. People were reluctant to fly when planes were first invented. And now, I mean, not during the pandemic, but before it, we were all flying quite yeah. regularly. I think if someone invented bungee jumping now and it didn't previously exist, you I mean, I wouldn't bungee jump anyway. You couldn't I, I, to do that. I, I, other I, distrust, do. I distrust bungee jumping quite. <laughs> But uh, it's true that I think I will also um, abstain. <laughs> yeah, but I think lots of people put a lot of uh, stress on the idea that these vaccines have came out very fast compared to the process of developing other vaccines. When in fact, okay, because it's been an emergency, they have put all the research on this thing. And the other day, oh, I see a different opinion in a podcast I was listening to that they said, you know, it's not about that they take very. They, they developed this very fast because obviously it was a very specific and very spe special situation and for exactly. global health danger. But the guys were saying the problem now is that the scientists have demonstrated that you can do this faster. So now there's a lot of pressure <laughs> on the pharmaceutical. Like, come on, guys, now you can take out these vaccines in like six months, you know, like because these guys did it before you. Yeah, now you can cure cancer and chicken pox and yeah. everything else. Get on with it. <laughs> Get on with it. Okay, well, let's zoom out a bit and look at some bigger picture angles. When we, when we talk about human rights in contemporary contexts, we're usually talking about the rights and freedoms of individuals, especially in societies based on liberal traditions that value individual freedom and choice and autonomy. And in health contexts, modern medical ethics includes the belief, is, it fundamentally is based on the belief that individuals 
have to have the right to make informed decisions about their own bodies and have to give informed consent before receiving medical procedures. And that doesn't always play out in practice the way it should, but that principle sort of goes to the heart of most modern medical training and ethics. But the right of individuals to make choices for themselves can sometimes be at odds with the rights of other individuals or the needs of other individuals, um, particularly vulnerable people or those in high exposure situations, um, as well as to the, the needs of bigger communities and societies. So there are a few different sort of conflicting human rights needs and interests when we're talking about health rights and health choices. So my question is, how can we balance the rights and safety of individuals with the rights and safety of other individuals and of communities? Yeah, well, this is a tricky issue um, that raises both legal and ethical questions and where states, including in Europe, have opted for different solutions and indeed researchers hold different opinions too. Um, from a human rights law perspective, the question here is always whether any restriction to a particular individual right has a basis in law and is necessary and proportionate in relation to the legit legitimate aim that is being pursued, which may indeed be um, the right of others uh, and, and public health and safety. In some sense, the concrete assessment or whether these criteria are then met will always be contextual and dependent on the individual circumstances of the case and the situation in the particular state in question. So state, states enjoy a margin of appreciation in matters related to public health policies. Uh, for example, this past spring, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg took a stand on a Czech policy of childhood vaccination. Um, that policy made some well-established vaccines compulsory and a requirement for entry into daycare and other types of preschool facilities. And in its judgment, um, the court found this policy to be, and I quote, consistent with the best interests of the children to be considered both individually and as a group and required to protect every child from serious diseases through immunization. So the fact that in this case, a parent was fined and children excluded from daycare and preschools as a consequence of non-vaccination was not considered a violation of their rights under Article 8 of the European Convention of Human Rights, namely the right to private life. Now, what the judgment leaves open is, for example, whether there could be an individual right to conscientious objection to vaccination on the basis of sincerely held religious or other beliefs. And I mentioned this because in some places, like in many states in the US, we find so-called exemption mandate, exemption schemes. These schemes are a way to seek to lessen the potential of vaccine mandate policies coming across as excessively coercive and interfering with parental choice and detrimentally affecting the so important trust that we talked about earlier. So individuals, parents, can be granted exemptions from mandatory vaccination of the children, not only on medical grounds, but also on religious or philosophical grounds, or indeed sometimes also because of more general personal reasons. 
Now, in order to get this exemption, one may have to attend a compulsory meeting with a healthcare practitioner to receive information about benefits and risks of immunization, but it's not always the case. And um, I mentioned these two examples because when thinking about the issue of balancing, as you put it, um, it's important to zoom in on the specifics of different legal arrangements that seek to take into account and cater to the different rights and interests and values that are at stake and that you pointed out before. So when states put in place vaccine mandates, for example, it usually means that they also adopt measures to secure compliance and that they impose some kind of sanctions for vaccine refusals, like in the Czech case that I mentioned. And this topic of sanctions or consequences is one that really raises various ethical questions. To what extent can different ways of handling or penalizing those who oppose mandatory vaccination be considered justified? What is acceptable and proportionate in terms of consequences or sanctions? Uh, is it, for example, correct that persons can be issued fines or suffer other economic disadvantages if they uh, refuse vaccines? Is it acceptable to exclude unvaccinated children from daycare and preschool opportunities? Can unvaccinated persons and their families be made to cover potential healthcare costs in the future in case they fall ill? And can they become liable to compensate damages inflicted on others, etc.? Um, now, what has to be kept in mind here is that the people who end up without vaccines may not do so because they resist vaccines or hesitate about them, but simply because of limited access, because they live remotely, um, because they belong to vulnerable and marginalized groups and so forth. So with regard to any policy, it's important to consider if legal arrangements and other policies discriminate depending on class, ethnicity, marginalization, minority position, and it's also important to reflect on what measures can benefit exactly those groups of people whose vaccine conduct results from grounds that are unrelated to vaccine hesitancy or outright vaccine opposition. Um, so summing up, different types of mandate policies and other kinds of efforts at balancing acts need to really be assessed as to their specific components and what we could call legally and ethically significant features. What's the scope of vaccines covered by mandate policies, for example? How many vaccines? Which are they? And what are the sanctions for non-compliance? How severe are these sanctions? And how do public authorities manage the enforcement of these policies and any related exemption schemes? Um, we also need to open up key concepts. For example, the best interest of which children are we talking about? In particular cases, individual children, children in general as a social group, or indeed those children who, for medical reasons, cannot be vaccinated and are dependent on herd immunity as a means of protection against serious infectious diseases. So all in all, uh, researchers do disagree, at least partly, um, as to which schemes and outcomes are ethically defensible 
And it's not self-evident that, for example, mandatory vaccination is the way forward from an ethical perspective, even if you would recognize that states have certain responsibilities in this respect, and that in general, the aim would be to protect a social good like public health and the right to health of, for example, children. Yeah, that's a really good summary of all the different (laughs) dynamics. I don't know how lawyers manage all of those different balances all at the same time. I think the European Court of Human Rights case is really interesting precisely because it's a perfect example of how many different groups or individuals are involved in in rights decisions when it comes to something like mandatory vaccinations because there are the parents and then the, the child who has separate interests from the parents in situations like this and then the, the child who is unvaccinated relative to the children, the other children at the preschool who might be exposed to whatever conditions an unvaccinated child might bring with them. So there are multiple players involved. But what's also really interesting is the way the legal reasoning works when they're making those kind of decisions Um, and the fact that this case is sort of based around the right to education rather than, um, I think before this case, if you'd asked me which European Convention on Human Rights article was the the one that you would make a kind of vaccination or health-based argument on, I would have guessed um, Article 8, the right to a private life, which is where a lot of these kind of social debates make their way into convention law. Um, but the fact that it's the the right to education of, of an unvaccinated child who is denied access to a preschool and then later to school in the Czech Republic if they don't pursue this kind of policy makes it, means that the way that the, the rights are argued for is quite different and goes in a, a direction you might not necessarily have expected it to. Yeah, I, I, I think that, well, this case that, we both are referring to uh, the judgment is almost 100 pages. Mm. Um, so it, it is a very s- comprehensive judgment. It, w- it was decided by the Grand Chamber, uh, which takes a stand on, on cases that are considered to be of principal importance. Mm. And uh, even so, um, some scholars um, have also criticized the case because in the end, it wasn't, of course, decided under Article uh, uh, 2 of, of, of Protocol Number 1 to the Convention, which deals with the right to education and parental rights in relation to education. Uh, it was um, decided, um, as you said, under Article 8. And um, the criticism has been that um, it would be important to distinguish between the rights of parents and and the rights and interests of children, and that the court doesn't do that um, enough in its its reasoning, and that refusing unvaccinated children the chance to attend daycare or school, in effect, means that you make them suffer doubly, uh, potentially. Um, So that has been a criticism um, directed towards the European Court of Human Rights in this instance. Um, But other scholars, in turn, have suggested more general that mandatory vaccination as a requirement for school attendance, for example, and something that has also been called a solidary sanction, actually limits individual liberty to a lesser degree than does a broader requirement for immunization of all children. So um, 
these cases, like so many other cases coming in before, for example, the European Court of Human Rights, just shows how they, they, are, they are cases that deal with different perspectives and different understandings of what is at stake in a particular situation. And the European human rights law framework also allows for um, different arguments to be made. Uh, and then it's, of course, up to the court how it will weigh that and balance that in the end. Yeah, I think we will see quite a few more of these cases in national courts and international ones eventually um, over the next few years. But I think the contexts in which they are decided and how they are interpreted are likely to be very different. And we might not see any kind of coherent body of law that is agreed upon for a very long time, if at all. <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah. Also, maybe because of the reason that I mentioned before, that when it comes to issues of public health, um, the court um, has stated um, that, that individual states have a margin of appreciation in mm. deciding on these national policies, mm. um, which also then uh, leads to a situation where these might look different and legitimately so. Yeah, but in, on more on the topic of uh, subject of human rights, uh, I would like to ask you for your perspective on global vaccine inequality. So the EU has contributed like 1 billion euros to the COVAX donation program, but the program still hasn't received enough donations to cover all the countries that need help. EU leaders have also been reluctant to waive patents, so vaccines could be made locally reliant on donations or having to wait their turn for orders to be delivered. So what are some of the consequences of this? Well, um, health is proclaimed to be an individual and social good and a fundamental human rights, like we've been talking about. And of course, this should influence action. But one has to ask really what assumptions underpin current policies and the way fundamental rights presently are being circumscribed because vaccines are being distributed unevenly around the globe. And there is protectionism in the area of vaccines and vaccine production, and also when it comes to medical supplies and protective gears, for example. And to a high degree, vaccine access does seem dependent upon state wealth, and vaccine production is too low, and there is need for better infrastructure, infrastructure for purposes of distribution. So globally, there surely is no equity in vaccine access. And um, whatever is done on a voluntary basis is not enough, neither in the short term nor in the long term. It means that taking responsibility in the current situation would require more than what's presently being done, including dismantling uh, monopolistic privileges and really opting for the path of open science rather than patent-driven research with all that that entails. Uh, because in the end, uh, one would think that everyone would benefit somehow from vaccine equity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in relation with this, at the same time, um, these European and American populations are already talking about these vaccine passports and opening up an international travel. So that means maybe that we are potentially looking at a world where, a, you know, wealthy vaccinated elite in the global north gets to live almost normally, while in the global south waits for what could be years of the same possibilities. So in your view, what are some of the main 
human rights and ethical issues here. Are, are we going to be a fortress Europe, as the title of one of the Europe Stories of projects, traveling around our continent, but not allowing people from other continents who have not been able to get vaccinated to get in? Well, um, I do see the sense in principle in linking vaccines and travel or mobility. It's done already, mm-hmm. although it often takes the form of recommendations. Depending on where you're traveling, you may be required to have been vaccinated, for example, against yellow fever. Yeah. However, looking at the issue of vaccine passports or the newly introduced EU digital COVID certificate in the way that you now formulate it, then yes, uh, while justified under the seemingly neutral guise of measures that aim to support both individual and public health, vaccine passports can indeed become yet another mechanism or tool for differentiating between those who are desirable and those who are not, between those whose mobility is almost unhindered and those uh, whose mobility is considered maybe unwelcome and discouraged. And there is, of course, ample evidence of a lack of transparency and discrimination and racism, etc., linked mm. to such practices. Um, moreover, as we talked about earlier, vaccine accessibility, including in terms of availability and cost, is a current issue. And there is no, not presently any global vaccine equity um, And we also know that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a huge negative impact on the global rates of extreme poverty. So sanctions for non-compliance, like travel restrictions, may and will surely disproportionately affect economically and socially disadvantaged groups. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think it's very important that what you pointed out before, that one of the reasons also for people sometimes not to access the vaccines because they... I mean, they cannot access them actually. Mm-hmm. They don't really have the medium to contact and do these kind of things that for some of us seems so normal. So I think it's good to raise this issue. Thank you very much for your for your answers, Pamela. It's really good to have like a broad and a study, you know, like a perception on this because I think uh I don't know, at the beginning when we start with the debate on vaccines, uh I when you read social media, sometimes it seems that they are just two point of view, like the people who want to get vaccinated and the people who don't. And obviously you get different perspectives depending on what side are you're looking and depending obviously on the algorithm, because this is how social media work. Sure. So it's good to know there are so many, so many different positions and some of them are as you say, like people need to make their own personal um informed decisions being this whatever they they are and there are so many things that affect our understanding um yeah we have a couple of lighter questions that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast so to start do you have a favorite book or movie or song or any kind of sort of cultural item that influences the way you think about Europe or which inspires your work? Well, um, I don't know if it's an all-time favourite book, nor if I'm really here by providing (laughs) a light answer, uh, but a book that relates to defining European events and which made a huge impact on me when I read it, when my teacher had me read it when I was about 11 or 12, was Eric Maria Remarque's uh, 1928 novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is about the First World War. 
And um, the author served himself as a soldier during the war on the German side. And the book is really about the German experience of that war, but also more generally about the atrocities of war. So, so if anything, that book reaffirmed me in my budding pacifism. That's great. 12 is quite young to read that. I was maybe 15, I think, the first time I read it. Yeah, I don't know what my teacher thought there. <laughs> <laughs> I have watched the movie. I haven't read the book, so I'm, I'm more than that, both of you. But, uh, but it's a great book. Yeah, it yeah. is. But it's true that it's a strong reading. I, I remember, like, you know, when, uh, when as kids at school, they made us read the Journal of Anne Frank. And, okay, you can identify with the girl, but at the end it's so sad and so dark. And I think we were also 12 when we read that. And my mother was like, why are they making you read this? You know, like this is a bit (laughs) hard, but I think it's good to wake up to these sort of experiences even at a young age. Yeah, and I suppose children are much more resilient than we assume they are. Lots of There are so many books like that that are written specifically for children, like... um, I don't know, I read The Boy in Striped Pajamas when I was quite young and that had a similar effect in terms of my understanding of the Holocaust from quite a young age and that is written from the perspective of a child who makes friends with one of the the children imprisoned in the camp. So, like, yeah. there's, there's lots of literature that is quite, seems quite dark and is quite dark, but so is the world. So children, I guess, can can handle that stuff. Um, anyway, yeah, another of our fun questions is like, uh, finally, if you could travel back or forward anywhere in time, where would you go and why? And you can even, you know, we had this addition in a program we did previously, and you can even choose like a fictional place, <laughs> you know, one of your favorite novels, maybe not the one you, you quote, because it's not a very happy place. But... No, oh dear, no. Um, well, I, I think that it would perhaps be really nice to simply travel back and and relieve some of my more cherished childhood memories, honestly, or indeed even a bit further back and meet my two grandfathers because I never got to know them. One died a year before I was born and the other within a year of my birth, so I have no personal memories of them. So that would be one answer um, to that question. Yeah. Yeah, that would be lovely. I would like to go back and see my grandparents at the same age that I am. I had relationships with them as an adult in my sort of 20s, but it would be nice to be in my 20s at the same time as them and see them live their lives before I was born. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a, really, it's a really good answer. I think I would mm. like to relieve one summer when I was around like, you know, seven or eight and I was like so great to have like the break from school and have actually <laughs> like two months of like doing nothing. And just- It felt eternal. It felt eternal. That's true. At the end, I was at the start. You had a lot of energy. At the end, I don't know about you. I I felt like I kind of want to go back to school. I'm a bit bored now of so many holidays. Yeah, I I, I like going back as well. Yeah, you had had a break. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, so um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us, Pamela. Thank you very much for your answers. Yes, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And thank you also to everyone who tuned in to listen. In the meantime, you can catch up on all the previous episodes of the podcast via SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Radio Public. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Eurostory and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Eurostory, as well as our website, eurostory.org. You can also follow the host on Twitter. I am at Matthijs underscore Emilia. And I'm at Zoe Charlotte J.
We would love to receive your feedback and your, hear your thoughts on this episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye. 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 This project is supported by the Academy of Finland funded Centre of Excellence in Law, Identity and the European Narratives. We would also like to thank Antonio Lopez Garcia for the theme music and Carla Schotter and Maria Erma for research assistance. Mm-hmm.